The following program may offend those with delicate constitutions. It's Monday, November 16th, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And you think he would have said something sooner. Talk about President Trump. He grouses and douses his supporter with the nonsense he espouses and Donald espouses intemperately. But the spewing of disinformation, I mean, it's sad and it's with consequence. I mean, a fracas, perhaps even a melee, ensued after Trump supporters clashed with Antifa members who just couldn't let the Proud Boys preen in solitude. But no matter. Trump has no play beyond a whimpering one, and little by little, Republicans are peeling off to say, Joe Biden's going to be president. Let's just get on with it. But here's this one interesting trend that I'm talking about, that he should have said something sooner. All these stories have emerged since the election, often having to do with Trump's plans now that he doesn't face electoral consequence. And in so many instances, I got to wondering, Might this not have helped Trump had he campaigned on it rather than try to hide it from the public? So first was the firing of Mark Esper, which in and of itself is anything to be proud of. None of this is. But he replaced him with Christopher Miller. And why that's important is that Trump seems to now have two aims with the military. One is to attack the Iranian nuclear facilities. That's not an electoral winner. But the other is total withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan. And that might have struck the electorate as a good policy. Polling shows they don't like being in Afghanistan. But furthermore, they might just be impressed that Trump had follow through. If Trump really is pressuring Miller to totally withdraw troops, and it happens, it will be one of the few times that Trump stuck to a hard-to-achieve promise. The other secretaries of defense got in the way. He made this grand promise. He could never do it. Maybe with Miller, he'll be able to do it. It seems to me, based on what the experts say, a bad thing. But I'm just talking about the election. In terms of the election, maybe holding that out there as a tantalizing prospect could have helped him. Then there's the selling of leases to oil companies to drill in Alaska, the ANWR, Alaska National Wildlife Refuge. Okay, so it does poll poorly throughout the United States, though they kind of like it in Alaska. But, you know, during the campaign, there was a big fight between Trump being on the side of continued drilling and fracking and fossil fuel extraction and Joe Biden saying, well, I'm for fracking except in certain instances. So if Trump just came out and said, here's an instance, we're going to drill, and Joe Biden would be forced to explain, no, 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 I always have been against drilling on national lands, on national parks. I don't know. It at least maybe paints him in a corner. Trump is willing to throw sand, tar sand or otherwise, in the eyes of his opponents and build a case on less than Joe Biden actually having to articulate an anti-drilling position. Again, it's maybe something that could have been useful to Trump. The last thing, and I don't think there's any ambiguity with this one, is the recent report that the Israeli Secret Service assassinated al-Qaeda's number two on the streets of Tehran, Abu al-Mazri. In fact, they killed the supposed mastermind of the embassy bombings of 1998 on the exact anniversary, the 12-year anniversary of those terrorist attacks. Now, someone knew this information and leaked it. Someone in security circles decided it was okay to let this information out, and it saw the light of day three days ago. But why not three weeks ago? Maybe it was because it was the New York Times who held the information, and they didn't want to put the story out before the election, which is in many ways a justifiable call. In fact, I think in a lot of ways. But the point is, 
if this thing actually happened, this assassination of an enemy of the United States, if it happened and Trump knew about it and it was okay to leak, I mean, maybe it's not okay to leak, but someone thinks it's okay to leak. Yeah, that all up. Why didn't Trump leak it or have someone leak it days, weeks or months before the election? So many questions about these stories and this one in particular. Did Trump think he was going to win? Did he really think that? Was his electoral calculus so off that he didn't think this would help at all? And I mean calculus in terms of he thought he'd lose big or he didn't think a story like that would help him. Maybe Trump didn't know about the operation. Maybe he's scared of upsetting Mossad. I have no answers. I'm just asking questions. You ask too many questions. Okay, okay, okay. Trump chose not to use any of these actual events to make a compelling argument to win the election. He was content to make his extremely uncompelling argument after the election. This must be why he thinks, at least the Proud Boys understand me. On the show today, the Latino vote. It's not a monolith, but what is it? We'll go deep. But first, with Thanksgiving around the corner, if you're planning to see relatives, you may have already begun the recommended 14-day quarantine. But we have good news for you. We, meaning me, in the scientific community. New research shows there's a shorter way to hole up and get the whole benefit of 14 days. That's right, 14 days at half the time. It's the quarantine deal of a lifetime. Plus, we'll also ask and answer questions about some of those other enduring rules of thumb concerning the coronavirus. Journalist Roxanne Comzi up next. So I guess the worst part about getting the COVID is the COVID. But then there's the 14-day quarantine part. This came up in my life because we had to decide whether to send one of our children back to public school. Well, now, actually, there is new science that the 14-day quarantine maybe can, should be cut in half if the right procedures are met. Roxanne Kamsey has written about this. She writes for Wired. She wrote about this story about quarantine periods for Elemental, and she joins me now. Hi, Roxanne. Hi, Mike. How's it going? I'm good. Since I'm a suspicious guy, I wonder, you know, why is it not 15? Why is it not 13? It seems a little too convenient that it's just a smack dab two-week period. So before we get about the latest, why did they recommend the 14-day quarantine period to begin with? So that's a great question. And I think that your questioning mind is 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 really appropriate for this pandemic because I think we had similar questions about that six foot rule, which has turned mm-hmm. out to be a little bit more um, right, which is based on two meters, which is European, which isn't exactly six feet. So if we were exactly. in six feet distance, we weren't actually <laughs> adhering to the two meter rule. But sorry, yeah. I, yes, yeah. So I think it's a great question. Where did we get fourteen days from? And essentially, it comes down to like how quickly somebody will test positive and show signs of having COVID. So typically, most people will test positive if they're around somebody who has COVID and somehow got exposed. They'll typically test positive within five days. But by day uh, 10 or 11 or so, about 97% of people will be testing positive. And by day 14 or so, almost you know, 99% of people will have tested positive. So they kind of got this two weeks by just looking at the transmission patterns and figuring out what seemed to be the most protective in terms of, you know, how can we say almost 100% of people as close to that as possible will be testing positive for COVID-19 before they kind of get back out into the world and start passing it on to other people. So it's a little convenient sounding, but it's 
It's based on these early studies from the spring. I was actually looking this up a few months ago because I had kids who were with their mother and then they were traveling back from another state. So what's the appropriate quarantine period? And I found these graphs, which the ones you're referring to, and I did notice exactly as you said that up to 10 days, 97% of all the people who actually had COVID were going to test positive. And so those last four days are to get that extra 2%, and it's not even necessarily 2% if you don't have the COVID in the first place. So I recommended a 10-day quarantine period, and I got some pushback. Wait, why not 14 days? Why aren't you taking this seriously? And I tried to explain the math and show the chart, but people's minds just go to, Anthony Fauci said 14 days, you got to quarantine 14 days. Well, and it's interesting. What you say is really accurate. I think a lot of this is the kind of mind bending that we can do when we start really digging deeper and deeper. Sometimes more, more questions and more conundrums come up. But I think one thing that's really interesting is it's often it's the, the exception that's making the rules in, and I, I mean that not in the idiomatic way, but literally, that we're looking at exceptions as a way to make the most cautious policies as possible. And so sometimes there's a little extra caution tacked on so that we can be extra sure that no one's going to pass it on. Because as you know, it just takes one person who's infectious to spark a, a big outbreak. So people are playing it safe to a large extent. How safe they want to play it is often dictating the rules. Right. So those 14-day periods were based on data that was assembled, I don't know, a few months into the pandemic. And it had a sufficient enough sample size that they could come to those conclusions that 97% of the cases would present themselves within 11 days. But I was desperately trying to find exactly how many cases of those they studied showed up in the last three days. And it's something like, you know, it's in the single digits. And there could be so many reasons why those single digit cases showed up. I mean, including error. Yeah, I mean, I'm with you. I do think that To you, 97% sounds like most, right? But I think it is a little bit of a Rorschach test because for me, 97% doesn't sound like quite a lot enough. Um, I think for me, 3% getting through is a big concern. So if you told me, Roxanne, there's a 97% chance you will win the lottery if you buy this $10 ticket, I'm going to give you that $10. But -hmm. if you said, Roxanne, you're going to sit in the hospital next to somebody who has a 3% chance of having a virus that could kill you. I don't know, all of a sudden that that 3% sounds, it's a much worse outcome than say like missing out on winning the lottery. Yeah, yeah, bigger downside risk. So let's talk about the latest couple of studies and people talking to each other that now are saying, ah, maybe maybe seven days is good enough. Uh, How are these studies conducted and what's the actual recommendation? So like a lot of things in this pandemic, these new studies are based on mathematical modeling and they take a bunch of data and run simulations and and these kind of elaborate calculations. When I looked at the research paper for the most recent study, there were um, a lot of equations that would make even a calculus student seem kind of like wanting to turn the page and look away. So it's really complex. And what the latest study comes from is uh, this group at the Yale School of Public Health from this guy who led the study is Jeffrey Townsend. Um, He's a biostatistician. And he and his collaborators, essentially, they looked at data on how long the virus takes to incubate within a person, how infectious they are, and the accuracy of the PCR test. So those are three different things that they wanted to model all together to kind of make a better understanding of when is the best time to give a person a test that will actually catch the fact that they are sick and they have infected with this new coronavirus and 
you know, how long should they stay in quarantine? And based on all of that data that they crunched together, they came up with this idea that essentially an eight day quarantine with testing that is carefully timed is equivalent to a 14 day quarantine like you and I were just talking about with no testing. Mm -hmm. And crucially, the testing would happen around day there would be two tests instead of just one. A lot of people are just doing one right now when they're doing their quarantines. But they say two tests is better, unsurprisingly. And what I found most fascinating is that that second test uh, really should happen around six day six or seven when there's kind of a cresting or like a, a, a growth of the virus that that test can pick up enough. Because, you know, you might have some virus in you, but it won't be enough for the test to pick up on. Does this contradict any of the old findings? Does this suggest that the virus won't present itself in days 11 to 14? Or is this more about even the definition of present itself? The virus that maybe wouldn't have presented itself in day 13, that's the same virus that you're picking up with a really good test in day eight. It's a little bit slightly different than that in that it's more about the front end that they're concerned about. So it's not really that you won't catch the virus in those later days. It's if you're going into quarantine and you test yourself on, say, day one, and you don't have enough virus in your system, and you say to yourself, well, I got a negative test. I've been in quarantine for six days. Like, I miss, you know, going out there. I'm going to go out now. So they're more saying that that you need to wait at least till day six or seven for there to be enough virus. Um, and then you can be more confident about whether it's truly negative. And interestingly, I don't know if, you uh, saw this, but they, they actually validated that idea on this group of oil rig workers. Yes, that's my favorite part. So yeah. tell me about that. So as you might imagine, um, a lot of companies are trying to figure out like the best way to quarantine their workers. And one place that has it really tough is these offshore oil rigs where these folks are, are working and, in cl- and living in close quarters. Once they ship off to the oil rig, it's like, going to be close with your buddies there and you know they're shouting a lot and as you know like shouting is a because a, a, it's loud out there it's shouting is like a great way to spread this virus it seems so there's all these factors that make it of concern what this company bhp it's an australian like natural resources company did was they were having a, their workers stay at a hotel like on the mainland before going to the offshore drilling site they were just testing these folks as they went into the hotel, but not doing a second test. And what they found is when they did that second test, and it was actually around day four because they had a shorter quarantine than, than you know, scientifically would be perfect if, if based on this study. After the new protocol was put in place, they found 16 people out of about a thousand who had tested negative on that entry test, but on day four actually had tested positive for COVID. So imagine if those folks had gone to the rig, I mean, there could have been outbreaks. So it's just a little bit of a hint of validation that like just testing people on entry and putting them in a hotel for a while is not enough. Right. And also it does highlight the point we were talking about. 16 out of, it was actually 1,026. That's one, a little more than one and a half percent, which seems like a, whole, a small percent, except in the situation you're describing, yelling on an oil rig, that's a recipe for an outbreak. Exactly. So this is, I think, very cleverly um, framed as a way to shorten your quarantine around Thanksgiving. In practical yes. terms, how would, by the way, is Thanksgiving in uh, Canada? 
I was just going to say American Thanksgiving. We actually had our Thanksgiving here in in Canada um, in October, and officials have said in Canada that it was linked to uh, an uptick in cases. So, I mean, as you know, like the holidays are a time when we want to see family, but there's such a risk of spreading this virus, and it's something that people need to take seriously. So the hope is that, you know, if we have a shorter quarantine that works it will be more feasible for people to do. Because I think a lot of people are just throwing up their hands and saying, well, I'll just leave it to chance. 14 days is a lot. So if you can shave six days off of that, it's a big difference. Right. But it really also depends on the ability to get the results of these tests back quickly, doesn't it? Exactly. Yes. So I should say a friend of mine was asking me about exactly this. And I said, look, these scientists are mathematicians. They are modelers. They don't necessarily take all the real world factors into account. They're kind of developing an ideal situation for Mm -hmm. public health officials to aspire to. Because frankly, I think we could be doing more testing if more was mobilized towards that um, across the board in in various countries. So this requires two tests, but I don't know. Have you heard of people waiting for longer than a day to get their test results back? Because I certainly have myself. Oh, yeah. In some states, I mean, it's way longer than a day. And it, it entirely correlates to where the tests are most needed in terms of where the outbreaks are happening. Right. But it is also true that I'm speaking to you from New York. I know Canada has done a great job combating the virus. Test results come back pretty quickly. It seems if people were put off by the idea of a 14-day quarantine before Thanksgiving, someone in New York could start a quarantine, let's say, exactly eight days, the week before Thanksgiving, the Tuesday of the week before Thanksgiving, and then maybe if they're going to get their test back in a day, test on the Tuesday of Thanksgiving, and then be cleared, essentially, under this protocol that you're writing about. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's definitely ways for like innovation and, and shrinking, as you say, like the quarantine ahead of the holidays, just to make it more feasible. Because like, you know, people have jobs to go to, and people have lives to live that that 14 days just, just, it's a really long time. Yeah. I want to ask you about some of the other pieces of advice, the totems of pandemic that I don't know have been researched or um, checked into. Maybe you do. So basically what we're told, and this has been pretty consistent, is six feet worth of distance, wear masks, outdoors better than indoors. And as I think about all those things, I say to myself, you know, it can't be the case that all of those factors are equally important. And as I just very anecdotally think about how people got the virus, it seems like indoors is the worst part of it. And then the six feet of distance, I really don't know if there's a difference between eight feet and four and a half feet. I would say that if I was even unmasked outside, I'd be a lot more comfortable than, you know, masked inside and at exactly six feet. But what do you think? With regards to the six foot rule, I I can't recall the exact specifics, but I know that like a lot of that comes from like studies of people sitting on airplanes in like the 60s and 70s or like they they did these experiments with people or they kind of infected them with a cold and like tried to see if they would infect other people. Just like these very artificial and like very tangential situations that aren't really recent. So uh, some of this stuff is just like almost like gifted to the next generation of epidemiologists and it's like not like examined super rigorously yeah half a step above uh, folklore or old wives tale absolutely totally so i think i mean i don't mean to diminish the hard work of the folks in the 60s and 70s right but like it's it's 2020 (laughs) 
I think that having truly evidence-based guidance would be important. And I wrote a piece about how um, coronavirus is airborne back in March. And I reached out to the WHO and I, before that piece published. And I asked them where the six-foot rule came from. And they, they, didn't, they responded very nicely to my email, but they didn't get, answer that question. So I think that um, it's fair for the public to ask wh- where these rules come from. Now, to go back to your question, which of those things matters the most? Six feet, wear a mask, outdoor versus indoor. I think staying far apart from somebody, wearing a mask, being outdoors, like all of those things are important. And I would be really remiss to try to just extract one that is the most. And, and can I also say that a lot of the stuff becomes like semantics at the end of the day. There's, in, and I've seen photos in New York of like these, restaurants that are cropping up outdoors or like, you yeah. know, these outposts that are outdoors, but they're basically recreating the indoors. Yeah. So what is, what is truly indoors is going to be like a existential question people can just ponder for a while. <laughs> yeah. Uh, l- let's hope they can and not succumb to coronavirus. Yeah. Uh, last question while I have you, what do you think the big difference between the Canadian response and the American response was such that the outbreak in Canada is much, much, much more controlled? Before I answer that question, I want to say that in some places in Canada, the virus is not necessarily doing so great. Like, I look to Vermont right now with jealousy because I think they've got it under better control than Quebec. So Canada did do a couple things differently from the States, one of which is their 14-day quarantine rule which in the absence of testing is better than nothing. And I think if I can also be honest about another thing that Canada did that I thought was was worthwhile was it really provided financial support to people faster than in the States and more consistently. So I think, you know, the U.S. is still wringing its hands over this relief package or those stand out to me as important. I just want to go back to the Vermont thing for a second. I think that uh, I've I've followed how every state deals with it, and it seems like Vermont has followed best practices. But it's also the case when you deal with small populations. It is possible, maybe even probable, that if you took an area in another state, or even in Quebec, the size of Vermont, with the population of Vermont, you know, just slice of Vermont, slice of whatever, northern New York or mm-hmm. eastern Quebec, that it would look exactly like Vermont. It's maybe benefiting from the fact that it has a smaller population. I did the num- I ran the numbers. I got my calculator yeah. out and I did the uh-huh. calculation for, of Quebec versus uh, Vermont. It was like tenfold higher per person he- or like oh. whatever, per capita here than in- like Vermont truly was doing better. And it's doing better than like Maine. Maine doesn't have that many people. Yeah, so, for, so long story short, Vermont definitely has the advantage of having fewer people. But there are other states that also have small populations and, and dispersed populations and, and they're struggling. Poor Vermont. <laughs> poor, poor Vermont. Before, before we wrap up the conversation, I do want to say just one thing. I think that the question about quarantining and how long to quarantine is going to be like the next debate of the next couple months. I think that there's there's already signs of different places in the world installing, like breaking down this 14-day quarantine. We're, we're kind of in this deconstruction of the 14-day quarantine where New York State now is doing a four days instead of two weeks for out-of-state travelers if you get a test and under certain circumstances, um, which, you know, is, is not 
that out of line with what the new study says, which by the way, the new study was in line with the previous study. So there's building literature on this. But by the same token, as you were talking, asking about Canada, Alberta in Canada is is running a pilot program in, based on air travelers, where if you're traveling to the airport, you get a COVID test at the airport and you go home and you wait for the result, which should be in about 48 hours. And if that result is negative, you can leave. Now, that is not a good approach if you're looking at this new study, which says you have to wait six or seven days. In the Calgary pilot program, you get a second test at six or seven days, but you've been walking around potentially spreading the virus. So I think we're going to see a lot of debate over quarantines, and I think some places are going to get it wrong. Some places are going to get it right. Don't be like Alberta. Are you saying New York is better than Edmonton in this one? <laughs> I mean... That's all I, I ever wanted I, to be was better than Edmonton. <laughs> I'm sure in terms of pizza, I think COVID's <laughs> still to be determined. <laughs> Roxanne Comzi is a science writer. She writes for Wired. Her latest new science suggests how to shorten the quarantine is in Elemental. Thanks so much, Roxanne. Thank you for having me, Mike. And now the spiel. This is from a Politico story a couple of days ago. Quote, for years, the Democratic Party has operated under one immutable assumption. Long-term demographic trends would give the party something like a permanent majority as the country as a whole grows less white and more urban. President Donald Trump's reliance on the politics of racial resentment would only quicken the process, solidifying support for Democrats among people of color. Then, continuing with the Politico report, then came November 3rd, 2020. All of those assumptions now seem like total nonsense. And you know, now I'm off Politico, just me talking to you. And you know the reasons why. Trump supposedly is anathema to racial minorities, yet he actually gained ground. And as much as Democrats want to offer explanations like... You know, even the non-white vote can contribute to white supremacy. Conservatives are practically crowing. Here's the National Review's Michael Brendan Dougherty on their editor's podcast. I know Molly Hemingway went on TV last night and said the Republican Party is now a multiracial working class party. I think that's premature to say. However, it what we are seeing looks like a step in that direction, like a, a real serious one. Um, you know, Republicans were winning more Hispanic votes, not just in Florida, right? So this is not just Cubans and Venezuelans who kind of have turned harder against the Democrat party as the Democrat party has embraced the label progressive and flirted with the socialist label. He won more Hispanics in South Texas, that is a sign of a shift. Now, there's a reason I do quote Michael Brandon Dougherty quoting Molly Hemingway rather than Molly Hemingway herself. And that's because I don't want your earbuds to actually start to melt or cry. But also, if I presented obviously falsifiable bits of hyperbole, it'd be easy to dismiss. But let's consider that idea that the Republicans, not the Democrats, are after four years of Trump, on an upward trajectory with minorities, and especially with Latinos. The Latino vote, I'm going to call it the Latino vote here, you know, Hispanic, Latinx, all different names, but this is what the pollsters call it. Latina, also. The Latino vote has been the subject of so much analysis in the last couple of weeks. First of all, experts need you to know that Latinos aren't a monolith, which is useful because 
every group in the world is not a monolith, maybe with the exception of a community like the Yuchi speakers of Oklahoma. There are two of them left, sisters Maxine Wildcat Barnett and Josephine Wildcat Bigler. And who knows, Maxine could favor an earned income tax credit where Josephine might prefer cash transfer. So maybe they're not a monolith also. So yeah, Latinos, people from essentially (laughs) the Western and Southern hemisphere at the same time. These are the Latinos. We're talking about a quarter of the Earth's landmass. They have that in common. And yet somehow they're not a monolith. Yes, because no one's a monolith. It's also important to note, and this is what the experts on the Latino vote say, you know, you can't just drop in around election time and expect people to vote for you. And there's an important third distinction, which is you have to listen to people's concerns and not make assumptions about them. So in that regard, Latino voters are like voters, all voters everywhere. Still, there are some useful insights out there. Meet the Press had a big panel discussion on it, the Hispanic vote, I mean. I thought the Republican strategist Al Cardenas made some excellent points. There are 15 million Hispanics, more or less, who voted, and about 30% voted for Donald Trump. Historically, over the last seven or eight presidential elections, you know, the margins have been between 25 and 40% for Republicans. So he was kind of on the lower side. Yeah. The uh, the net gain for, uh, for Biden was 6.5 million voters in the Hispanic community. And frankly, he won by 5 million votes. So if you're a Latino organizer, you could say, hey, we got him a net polarity, which exceeded the national polarity. So I don't think they did that bad. I think there were a couple of pockets like Miami and Texas that uh, that were an outlier. That's all correct. Trump got 35 percent of the vote, which was an improvement on the 29 percent he earned last time. Now, in Texas, he got 40 percent of the vote. But in 2016, he also did better in Texas than he did in the rest of the country. Now, there have been a lot of articles about Trump's strength in the Rio Grande Valley. Special attention has been paid to Zapata County, heavily Hispanic, but it turned red. It is a county of 3,000 people. So it was two to one Hillary, and then it was one to two Biden. But Texas Governor Greg Abbott retweeted a story from the UK Independent headlined, why did Texas's overwhelmingly Latino Rio Grande Valley side with Trump? I can answer the question. It didn't. That's an inaccurate headline. When the story ran in the Washington Post originally, the headline was why Texas's overwhelmingly Latino Rio Grande Valley turned towards Trump. That is right. Trump got a greater percent of the vote than he had before. But as the story notes, Biden still won more votes in total in the Latino, among the Latinos of the Rio Grande Valley. Still, you could see why Republican Governor Greg Abbott would tweet the version of the story that showed Latinos went Republican. Full stop. He explained, Latinos increasingly vote Republican. For the first time since Reconstruction, a Republican presidential candidate won Zapata County. I get more than 40% of the Latino vote. They like their energy jobs. They believe in God and oppose abortion. Okay, the story in the Post, originally in the Post, and then kind of cribbed and misheadlined in the Independent, has a lot more depth than that. And it's also true that Hispanics in Texas cities backed Biden overwhelmingly. Of course, Biden did better in Texas than any Democrat ever has since uh, Bill Clinton, and maybe even better than Bill Clinton. The whys include the standard but accurate lessons that I quoted before, community engagement, messaging, taking no one for granted, remembering the Latino vote is diverse and in need of wooing. As far as issues, if you want to 
give an explanation about what issues Trump champions that Latinos like. Yes, it's true. Latinos are more religious than the country as a whole. But, you know, it's interesting. If you look at black evangelicals and Latino evangelicals, the black evangelicals do not vote Republican to any degree close to what the Latino evangelicals do. Okay. So I have maybe one contribution, one idea, a theory, a theory to consider. Why do a third or did a third of Latinos vote for Trump? Why did they perhaps prioritize their religious or their economic or any other status before that of what we're told is a threatened racial category? So remember that quote that I read in the first part of the spiel, Politico saying long-term demographic trends would give the party something like a permanent majority as the country as a whole grows less white and more urban. That ignores the fact that in the United States, groups that weren't once considered white become white. It happened to the Irish and the Italians and the Jews, and there's no reason to think it won't or isn't happening to Latinos. Latino isn't a race. It's an ethnicity, to hear ethnographers tell it. Uh, Surveys show, however, many Latinos do consider their Hispanic heritage a race, something close to a race. According to Pew, for instance, among multiracial Hispanics who indicate their background includes two or more census races, 30%, the biggest category, say most people would think of them as white if they passed them on the street. Additionally, many Latinos have always thought of themselves as white. Back in their home countries, if they're first-generation immigrants, they were white, then they come to the U.S., and they're told there's something other than white. This is a big area. There's a lot of nuance to it, but my point is this. Latino voters, as a lived experience, too many of them, don't consider themselves much different from the quote-unquote white people, as in white people of European ethnicity. I think it's quite possible during my lifetime that we will see a trend not just of the attitudes of Latinos converging with the attitudes of whites, but with the identity converging as well. Plus, you have intermarriage and assimilation. It's all playing a role. None of this is a given. There are more and more efforts to assert racial identity and to not allow it to be folded in the general category of whiteness. There's a lot of scholarship and literature on this, how whiteness is a construct that is essentially designed to be an impossibility for African-Americans. That I understand. I'm not glossing past any of this. I'm just looking to analyze why it was surprising to so many that Latinos voted, a third of them voted for Trump. And you've heard the explanations. Perhaps they were intended to. Perhaps the Trump administration advertise better on Snapchat. But I'm saying maybe many Latinos don't so heavily emphasize and identify as something other than white. So in general, to take a half step back and ponder the question, why are these categories of voters not voting like this other category of voters with whom they have similarities? That does rest on assumptions. And the assumptions that I hear being talked about are about what's shaping the vote, and those assumptions have largely ignored how we shape the category. And that's it for today's show. Daniel Schrader isn't buying shorter quarantine recommendations. Twas a fortnight whence shall be a fortnight hence, he always says. Margaret Kelly produces the gist. She's wondering how the Latin vote went. Not the Latino vote, the vote of actual Latin speakers. 
who get all of Trump's speeches translated into Latin so they can consider his use of the second declension of the accusative case. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. She wants us to know that Michael Dukakis got 69% of the Latino vote nationally and spoke Spanish, but only 43% of the Texas vote, and he ran with a Texan on the ticket. I guess so did George H.W. Bush. The gist, I've always said, of Texas counties, as goes Zapata, so goes Jim Hogg and Def Smith. They're all real, not being offensive. Maybe I am, but they're still real. Oom Peru, Depru, Dupru, and thanks for listening.